But the unique thing about it is right there is a bullet hole in it. And I'm sure we all contribute in, in our own way by keeping the memories alive, by looking after memorials, by paying respects and then keeping the memories alive, as I say, passing it on to the next generation. That's just a bigger part for me. Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. Romance, tragedy, mysteries, all a part of your heritage. Each month, we will explore our guest family trees and the inspirational stories of their ancestors. What led them to begin their genealogical quest? What have they learned about their heritage? We're the founding members of Lower Bucks Genealogists and have been researching our own family histories for 30 years. We are the Heritage Hunters. Family heirlooms are a great gift to receive, and they can shape a story about your ancestors. Heirlooms allow family historians to add dimension to our ancestors and bring them to life instead of just names, dates, and places. A family heirloom is something of special value that is handed down from one family generation to the next. A family heirloom holds either sentimental, monetary, antique, or cultural value. On today's show, we'll be learning what family heirlooms others have received and how these items have enhanced their knowledge of their family history. Our guest today is Paul Chittix. Paul has been researching his family history for more than 20 years. He is a regular host of the Ancestry Hour program on Twitter and the face behind Family Tree Magazine's Dear Paul column. Paul also has a blog, The Chittix Family Tree, where he wrote two posts regarding family heirlooms in August of 2021. Welcome to the show, Paul. You have your own blog, The Chittix Family Tree. I do, yes. And tell us how the heirloom posts from August of this past year came about. You know Marianne Burkwood? Marianne's a good friend. We've, we've met at genealogy shows before. Marianne once told me about how she brings genealogy alive with her family members who may not be necessarily interested in birth certificates, death certificates, what I call the, the boring stuff. So what she would do is when a family gathering, she would bring one or two physical items to the table just to promote some discussions and some talk about, it could be some World War medals or it could be, it could be just a trinket box or something like that. And that kind of got me thinking about, we've all got different kinds of heirlooms and what we regard as, as an heirloom. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. And I, I, I put a little uh, tweet out about the heirlooms. And, it, and again, the response was phenomenal and um, some absolutely beautiful. Uh, and the vast array of, 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 of items was incredible. It was from walking sticks. There was a picture. I can't remember the lady's name now, um, but she had a, a like a Hessian uh, smock come dress. And that looked absolutely incredible. Absolutely lovely. And also the, the spin-off of that, and I've not really actually progressed it myself, but I think about what, what am I actually going to leave as an heirloom? Barry in the UK, he had um, a, a massive toolbox. 
I can't remember the actual ancestor who, who it belonged to, but it had all little built-in nooks and crannies and the tools were all in there. And I think it was the first thing that uh, the ancestor that he was talking about was a, a, an apprentice carpenter. And their first job as an apprentice is to make their own toolbox. I'm a great believer in something physical and tangible is the best way to make a connection. It's about bringing it to life, but it's also about how diverse and, and different things can be. Um, it doesn't always have to be a set of medals. And it does, you know, it can be whatever it is that means so much to your family. I think one was a, a table and chairs, a dining room table and chairs that have been restored. I think they've been re-upholstered. And, and so, yeah, it's incredible, incredible. Really does add a lot of flavor to your family history if you know the provenance of the of the object. Yes, yeah, certainly. If you can place it in a in a in a period and and maybe a timeline, um, it could be around Civil War, World War One, World War Two. Um, yeah, you can you can seat the actual uh, physical item into into history. Then, I've got my grandfather's or great grandfather's medals all framed. But again, there's a blog on there all about them, and I'm so they look amazing. I'm so pleased that I took the time and. I'd had them for a long, long time, and I'm so glad that I did that job properly and didn't sort of rush it. And so that's they mean a lot to me. Um, but probably the most significant thing is um, I've got a book, which was a, a Sunday school book that was presented to my dad. Um, and because he, my dad died so young, I've not got many items that were physically belong to him. And this was um, uh, for good attendance at Sunday school. So that, that really, that means the, probably the most to me, if you like. Join us on Saturday, December 11th at 1 p.m. for a virtual telethon fundraiser to support the educational programming of the old barracks museum, including the new Connecting to the Revolution virtual field trips. It's free to tune in and donations will be accepted from now through the end of the event. The telethon will be streamed via Facebook Live and Zoom on December 11th at 1 p.m. The content will range from historical to hysterical and will be performed by staff, volunteers and friends of the old barracks. Throughout the telethon, donations will be solicited and collected via Facebook donations and PayPal to help support the educational programming of the old barracks museum. Connecting to the Revolution is a live virtual program for schools with seven program options. Classes will be able to take this field trip from school, home, or a hybrid of the two. The program is a mix of live and pre-recorded video, and the students will be able to ask questions and interact with the historical interpreters. Sponsored by Saul Ewing Arnstein and Lur, LLR, John O'Sullivan, and you can register for the telethon at www.barracks.org. That's www.barracks.org. Check it out. Tom Kecklin of Levittown, Pennsylvania, was handed down a military sword from 1836. It belonged to his great-grandfather, George W. Hubbard. George was born in 1811 in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and died 1896 in Easton, PA. 
Tom also has a hand-painted porcelain beer stein from circa 1900 that belonged to his grandfather, Christian Gottlieb Adolf Kecklin. He was born 1878 in Gibbingen, Germany, and died 1936 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Tom has been researching his family history for 15 years. First of all, I'd like to describe my great-great-grandfather, because he was this, the owner of this sort. He was born in 1811 in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Moved to eastern Pennsylvania and joined the Army. That was the Mexican War in 1842. So in the Civil War, he signed up again, and he was artisifer. Now, I didn't know what an artisifer was, and it is somebody who fixes things. It's not a dress sword. It's an everyday sword. But he wore it every day, but he uh, got a bullet hole put in it. Now, everybody says to me, Tom, did your great-great-grandfather get shot during the Civil War? And I said, well, the way the family tells it, he was coming back through his lines and forgot the answer to the century. His own century shot him. The sword is, was made by Ames Company. I believe it was from Massachusetts. And uh, they've made swords for every country that had swords. I mean... The Germans, the French, the English, all had Ames swords. And it was just a, a unique thing. It sat around our house for many, many years. Now it had all the belts with it and everything you needed to wear it except for the buckle. Now these guys, when they came back from the war, they took the buckle. The thing is, it was passed down, but the thing was, it sat in the attic. I mean, nobody could see it or, you know, so my great aunt had it. That was my grandmother's sister mm -hmm. in Easton. And she died, and my mother got it. And, you know, anything my mother had was mine. I have a German drinking mug that has my family's name on it and from Gippigan, Germany. How do you can tell if this is a real one or not? Hold it up to the light. There's a scene in there. Here it is from the early 1900s. Well, it probably belonged to his father. I always wondered why it had the lid on it, though. So spill it, spill it. Karen Wyatt of Fairless Hills, Pennsylvania, has a family prayer book that was printed in 1925, which is written in Hungarian. It belonged to her grandfather, George Holler. He was born 1902 in Mezzatore, Hungary, and died 1976 in Trenton, New Jersey. Yeah, actually, it's pretty old. It was printed in 1925. It did not come over from Hungary. Um, it was my grandfather's, so he acquired it after he came to the United States. Um, he came over, well actually him and my grandmother came over literally fresh from the boats. They passed through Ellis Island. We actually researched them. And we found the paperwork and the dockets from the boats from where they came over, which was very interesting. So he didn't have much. They didn't have much when they came over. So they got their, they each had a prayer book that looked like this one. It's, uh, it's a black box. It started out being a black box. It folds open and it has a, a printed liner. Uh, inside it's a leather book and this thing is coming, it's coming apart from so much use. There are a couple, there are hundreds of pages. At one time it had a gold foil edge. And you can tell it was very important to him. There's prayer cards inside. It looks like it has some 
obituary cards similar to the ones that we get now when we go to a funeral and there's even tape marks from old tape for used to use and it's all in Hungarian of which I can only recite a couple words or know what a couple things mean. Are all the pages there Karen? As far as I know all the pages are here. Good. Um, they're all yellowed and they're old. They're very old and it's you can tell it's very dear. My grandparents did not want to be associated with Romani necessarily because that was the gypsies. They are very secretive. There is some writing. It looks like, again, I can't read it. There's some notes, there's some dates. My mom handed it to me and she says, you know, she, yeah, take care of this. And she still has my grandmother's. I want to have the set one day, not, you know, in, in a morbid way, but I want to keep them together. I don't want to restore it because it's got the character of them. Okay, that's you. That's yeah, yours. I mean, I I love old books. I love the smell of old books. Mm -hmm. I love the texture of old books. This yeah, to I me, probably wouldn't restore it, but I would probably do my best to preserve it. Every day, and it just makes me feel close to them again. Janet Few of Devon, United Kingdom, has a patchwork quilt that was started by her great-grandmother, Clara Woolgart, in the 1880s. Clara was born 1858 in Essex, England, and died 1949 in South London, England. Janet has been researching her family history for 45 years. I have in my possession this patchwork quilt. So I have this family patchwork quilt, which was begun by my great-grandmother who I never knew, she died before I was born. And her name was Clara Woolgar, and it's quite a tiny, tiny little octagons. Do I mean octagons? No, hexagons that she's used. And it's clearly material from her dresses or from her husband's shirts. Lovely Victorian material. I estimate this was probably started in the 1880s because the way the patchwork quilt is, is constructed is to cut out hexagons of paper and then <clears throat> cover them in material and then sew the edges together. When I was given custody of this, a lot of the little pieces of paper are still in the hexagons because it's not finished. And so I was able to take some of them out and they're things like pages of old school exercise books. So my great grandmother worked on this and did the majority of it. Uh, my grandmother did a little bit, her daughter. My mother did some when the quilt came to her. And then my mother also used to do patchwork on her on her own behalf so I've actually got a, a companion quilt also not finished uh, which was done in the 1960s by my mother with with rather different materials and then my mother became very superstitious about doing patchwork she claimed that every time she did some patchwork somebody died or there was some great tragedy or accident so she stopped doing it which is why these are unfinished I, mean, I don't know why my great-grandmother didn't finish it I don't know why my grandmother didn't but that's why my mother never did anything more to it, but she didn't throw it away. So now this belongs to me. And, and even I'm a little bit funny about doing patchwork, having been brought up with this, because when I was about, I don't know, 14 or 15, and patchwork skirts were really in fashion, it was the hippie era. And I said, oh, I really like a patchwork skirt. And my mother said, well, I'm not doing it. 
So I started one and then two of my good friends had a really bad motorbike accident. So I thought maybe I wouldn't do it either. Um, so I, I don't do patchwork for myself, but I did think because this is it's full size. It's just um, not had any edges finished off and it's not had the tacking taken out and it's not had the papers taken out. So I did think that I could finish it off and that wouldn't really count. So a few years ago, I did begin turning the edges over and hemming it. Nothing awful happened. I'm still going to finish it one day. It's just time has, has taken over and it's not something that, that I've done. But the idea is that both my daughters and my grandchildren will have a little go at it as well, because I don't want to finish it completely. I will... Uh, I, I will do some and I will leave a little bit so that we can actually get the, the sixth generation to, to do some of this particular quilt. And then I'm thinking, actually, it's in a state now where it could go on a spare bed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the spare bed is, is in sunlight. And so I don't really want to put it there. So it fades. So I'm like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> what am I going to do with it when I've done it? But I, I'm, I treasure it. It would be one of the things I rescued if there was a fire. Oh. And although it doesn't actually add a new member of my family tree or it doesn't add a generation or anything like that, I still think it's important because it's part of the family story. And I think it's important because I can see the clothes that they wore. Um, as I do have a few photos, but obviously they're black and white and they're small and, and you certainly can't really get much of a feeling for colour of clothes. They're it's quite sombre colours. They're mostly, there's some, some red, plain red in there. I don't know where that came from. That's a sort of silky material. But most of them are little tiny checks and quite dark blues, browns, that's that kind of colour. Quite a few little patches with, with flowers on, but, but tiny, tiny flowers, typical Victorian prints. So I think it's rather nice that I can, I can look at this and think, gosh, yes, that, she must have had a blouse that looked like that. And they're all all done as as sort of flowers. So you've got a central patch and then the six surrounding ones are mostly all the same colour. Sometimes around the edge, she's got a centre and then three and three. But it looks like a a whole series of flowers as, as you lay it out. Oh, that's wonderful. What a what a great family treasure to have. Some ways to preserve your family heirlooms are by using acid-free paper, lignin-free paper, UV-resistant glass for pictures or documents that are in frames, using acid-free boxes, tissue, polyester sleeves, and also using archive spray on some of your older documents. For more ways to preserve your family heirlooms, please visit www.archives.com. Gov. You can also refer to the book Creating Family Archives by Margot Note. Hope Callan Beck of Pendle, Pennsylvania has a loving cup from 1905 that was passed down from her great-grandmother, Alice Leonard, who was born 1884 in Bedford, Pennsylvania, 
and died 1981 in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. One of my favorite things is I have a loving cup. So it's a cup and it has three handles. So the first person would take a drink and then the third handle is so you could pass it to the next person and everybody would take a sip from the cup. And it has on it 1905 Smouse Reunion, which is one of great, great grandmother. And so I actually, I looked up the newspaper article. So they actually had an article about the 1905 Smouse Reunion. So that was the gift they got that year. Author Helen Parker Drabble, who wrote, Who Do I Think You Were? A Victorian Inheritance of Swindon, United Kingdom, has written in to describe her family heirloom. Helen writes, My heirloom is a character reference given to my Victorian working class grandfather, Walter Parker, who lived 1885 to 1975, just before he emigrated to Canada in 1907 at the age of 21. It appears to be a simple document, but behind these formal words was a story of courage in the face of authority. The document was signed by Arthur Forrest, the agent to Hastings William Sackville Russell, his grace the 12th Duke of Bedford. The reference is dated on the 5th of March, 1907. The reference was given despite young Walter's refusal to take off his cap in respect to one of the most important men in the Duke of Bedford's village of Thorny, Cambridgeshire, England. If you would like to read an extract of Helen's current book, Who Do I Think You Were? A Victorian's Inheritance, you will be able to do so at her website at www.helenparkerdrabble.com. If visitors scroll to the bottom of the page, they can get the first two chapters, the contents, index, and references for free. Just click on the button, your two free chapters are waiting. The language used in the reference gives us a peek into the formality of the period in a model agricultural village of England. The reference made it possible for Walter, a shy 21-year-old man, to leave behind his disgrace, protect his father's position and the family home, and begin an adventure in the Canadian prairies which would last 25 years. The reference shed light on how Walter was able to move out of the closed agricultural village. It was confirmed that Walter's father was the estate foreman, the highest status a working class man could achieve in Thorny. The role was described in detail by the Duke in his book, A Great Agricultural Estate, being story of origin and administration of Woburn and Thorny, published in 1897. Helen writes, Walter fascinated me as a child. I wanted him to share his life with me to eliminate a time of profound social and political change when a working class Englishman could become a landowner in Canada. But in the face of my naive compulsion to connect with him, Walter remained mostly inaccessible. As an 11 year old, I was delighted when he came to live with my family in 1974. At last, I would hear the longed for stories of his Victorian childhood and his adventures as a bachelor homesteader on the Canadian prairies. Yet no matter how hard I searched for a key to unlock his silence, the door to his past remained firmly shut. I desperately wanted to attach to feel close to him, but his emotional distance defeated me. My Victorian grandfather, Walter Parker, was born in Upwell, Norfolk, England, but the family left in 1892 for Thorny, an estate owned by the 12th Duke of Bedford. The purpose of the Thorny estate was to provide food for the staff and family at the larger estate of Woburn. Walter's father, a carpenter and builder, was the foreman of the estate and managed the sewage and water supply for the village. 
In the summer of 2013, I unexpectedly found myself near Thorny. Imagine my delight to find that the house in the tank yard where Walter had grown up was now the Thorny Museum. Incredibly, the volunteer steward, Jeremy Culpin, overheard my interest in the Parker family. He asked if I wanted an introduction to my mother's first cousin. Walter's niece, Mary, was born in 1918, had grown up in the village and lived nearby. At our first meeting, I discovered the cap incident was significant enough to be passed down our two estranged branches of the family. Mary added a new and dark twist to the family tale by telling me that Walter had not doffed his cap because of the man's, quote, evil ways with young girls, end quote. According to Mary, although this was apparently well-known in the village, it was not openly acknowledged. During my family research, a transgressional legacy of loss, trauma, anxiety, and depression unraveled. It revealed repeated patterns of behavior that I too had unwittingly passed on. This discovery helped me understand my work's focus. As a genia therapist, my mission is to share historical and current theories around mental health, psychology, and neuroscience to help family historians answer their question, who do I think you were? In Granddad's refusal to take off his cap, I like to think Walter acted truthfully in a way the adults felt unable to do. Whatever happened, it feels as if Walter's principled stance created an ethical inheritance whereby people were encouraged to do the right thing, whatever the cost. Please go ahead and follow Helen at her Twitter page, her Facebook of Factual Tales, on Pinterest at Helen P. Travel, and on LinkedIn. Helen, thank you so much for writing in and telling us about your family heirloom. And now let's continue our conversation with Paul Chittix. Well, I've been researching for, I'd say, about 20 years. And what happened, my, my dad sadly died when I was just three years old. So he was only 30, died in an accident. And I grew up and there was always a sense of something missing. There was always a piece missing, if you kind of understand. And really, there was he was never spoken about and his name was never mentioned. I think it was just too upsetting for, for, for his own mum, like my nan. And then kind of once my nan and granddad had passed away, then I started to, to become curious. And I started to ask questions about what my dad was like, where he worked, what his friends, who his friends were. Uh, and I guess I never just never stopped asking questions. Started with my dad, and it's just it really grew from there. It's uh, yeah, very absorbing. Well, again, that was it. Kind of all happened bizarrely uh, from from sort of nowhere really. I had no intention. I never set out one day. I thought, oh, I'm going to write a blog. I'd written an article actually about my grandfather for Family Tree magazine, and the sub editor there. Um, she asked me that would I like to write some blogs for their website so I wrote a couple of generic family history blogs on why you should join a family history society how to use google google in your family tree research just some generic stuff then I thought I quite quite like this I quite enjoy this and I'd always thought about writing up stories about my family and it was always I'll do that next time. I'll do that next time. I'll, I'll just keep researching. I'll just keep researching. And you never really, you'll be researching until the day you die. So at some point you have to put the brakes on and say, no, we need to capture this. Um, and so I started writing. Really, I only ever started writing for myself. It was only something for me. 
my family, my children. I've got some elderly aunts um, that might be interested. And it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed that people read wide, right? It's, uh, I find that absolutely amazing. But a lot of people tell you, they always say to you, you know, when, they, when you read all the writing tips and blog tips, and, I, and I, don't get me wrong, I did do a lot of research before I started. And they always tell you, know your audience, know your target audience, and this, that, and the other. But I'm a great believer. You need to write for yourself as well, actually. Absolutely. You know, write what you want to write for you as much as anybody else. Kind of a sideline, I, I, I've, been, I've set up a new website and a new blog page because during World War II, my great aunt, she died in a German bombing raid in London, East London. So I was curious about how she died. And she was amongst 34 firemen and firewomen that died in a bombing raid. It's actually still today the largest ever loss of life for the fire brigade at a single incident. And so I started to investigate what happened. And it was kind of a lot of the stuff was suppressed, I think, because of the World War II and morale. They didn't want to sort of announce that a large group of the community had died. So a lot of the information was kept out of newspapers. So I began sort of researching into that story. So now I actually started to research the lives of all 34 firemen and women. And I'm writing up their biographies and their stories. for joining Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production hosted by Barbara Jean May and Hope Callenbeck. We hope you've been enjoying Heritage Hunters and would love to hear your thoughts on the show. Head over to heritage-hunters.com and leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe to Heritage Hunters on Spotify so that you will never miss an episode. We'll see you next month on Heritage Hunters. Heritage Hunters.